Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Jane Croft, our law courts correspondent. Down the line from New York, we're joined by Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent. This week, we will be looking at the latest signs of stress in the Eurozone banking sector, both in Italy and in Spain. An update on the situation at RBS as it attempts to settle with disgruntled shareholders. From Asia, a look at global banks as they increase their hiring. And an update on Canada as the mortgage banks there look to be in distress. First, though, to the Eurozone. Martin, as we've been reporting, it does seem in Italy as though Monte di Paschi di Siena, there's the oldest bank in the world, is getting close to a deal with the European authorities over a bailout, which could amount to about 8 billion euros or more. This has been a long-running saga. It feels as if it may be coming to an end. How important is that, do you think? I think it's very important. Some of the heat has been taken out of it since the Italian government late last year announced that it had decided to pursue essentially what amounts to a bailout with an element of bail-in attached. In other words, some of the junior bondholders are going to be asked to convert their bonds into shares, giving them a stake in the bank, and the government will inject several billion euros of capital in order to fill a big hole in its balance sheet. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. We think within the next month. We think agreement's quite close between the European Commission, the European Central Bank and the Italian Finance Ministry who are all locked in negotiations about the fine details of this plan. So once that happens, I think that is an important moment, but it doesn't mean that the Italian banking system is fixed. You've still got other slightly smaller banks, but important ones that have got problems to be fixed. You've got the Vicenza Bank and Banca Veneto, two regional banks that both need a similar kind of exercise carrying out. And so there's negotiations, I think, happening between Italy, Brussels and Frankfurt on those as well. But it does feel as though the real atmosphere of crisis in Italian banking has lessened somewhat as those banks get close to bailout and seem to be fixing themselves. In Spain, of course, there are more signs of trouble there and people have been comparing the plight of Banco Popular with Monte de Paschi to some extent. Will such a long drawn out crisis befall Popular, do you think? I think it's possible, but I don't think so. There seems to be enough interest from the big Spanish banks in acquiring Banco Popular for what would be a very 
big discount to its book value. The bank's been forced to put itself up for sale. It's been forced to change its senior leadership, bring in a new chairman from JP Morgan, Emilio Saracho, who has put the bank up for sale and is also examining other options for raising capital. Analysts estimate that it needs somewhere between three and five billion euros of extra capital, given it's got a market capitalization of below three billion. That is a pretty big ask. Why, you might say, would the likes of Santander, BBVA, or even Bankia go ahead with a big deal like this, buying what amounts to the sixth largest bank in Spain, which is crippled with these toxic real estate loans? Well, underneath all of that rather unappealing exterior is a pretty solid SME lender in Spain. And the Spanish economy has been recovering quite strongly. So SME lending should be a fairly profitable business. And if they can buy this bank for a big discount, then there would be big synergies for a Spanish bank and they could boost their market share in SME lending, which would be uh, quite strategically attractive. Well, it's certainly an approach that I think the Spanish regulator would favour. So we'll see how that does pan out. Let's move on now to our second topic of the day and a look at RBS as it tries to fend off the latest bout of legal action. Jane Croft, our law courts correspondent, joins us now. Jane, thanks very much for coming in. You're back from the High Court where I gather the judge has delayed the hearing again today. This is the second day running. In expectation, is this that basically an out-of-court settlement can be reached between RBS and these plaintiffs? Maybe you should explain what the case is about as well. (laughs) Yeah, what this is basically about is it's a £700 million case brought by thousands of angry shareholders over RBS's 2008 rights issue, which was conducted in the months up to the financial crisis and in the months up to when RBS nearly collapsed and basically had to receive a £45.5 billion bailout from the government. So these investors are saying that under the sort of leadership of Fred Goodwin, they effectively were misled in the rights issue prospectus about the health of RBS and the health of the company. So they're suing the bank, wanting to get compensation. There's been settlement talks in this started over the weekend. The trial was due to open on Monday and it's been delayed two days now. The High Court's been told today that the majority of investors bringing the case have indicated they're willing to accept the latest offer from RBS to settle it. The real interest in this trial is who is actually testifying. So Fred Goodwin, the disgraced former chief executive who brought RBS to the brink of ruin, hasn't really been seen much in public since his appearance before the Treasury Select Committee in 2009. So basically, he is due to be one of the witnesses and being cross-examined in court for two days. Other RBS former directors like the chairman, Tom McKillop, are also due to be cross-examined. So that's the real interest in this trial, hearing from the people at the heart of the run-up to the disaster that befell RBS in autumn 2008. But of course, if the settlement talks do lead to an out-of-court settlement, your fun will all be gone. You won't see uh, Fred Goodwin in court. Indeed. And that's exactly what RBS, I think, are looking to do. RBS don't want the kind of events of 2008 to be raked up yet again and for new information to come to light. Obviously, the RBS is still 73% government owned. It's been posting losses. It's yet another kind of legacy issue that the bank has to grapple with. And obviously, if they can kind of settle it, that means that that 14-week trial and the embarrassment that might come out of it is avoided. And just finally, to put this in context, 
We've had a number of shareholder lawsuits that have been brought against RBS relating to this rights issue and that basically the allegation was that when RBS went to its shareholders to raise this money, it wasn't totally upfront with them about the state of the bank and they were duped. Now, it's settled all other lawsuits from shareholders in this regard. This is the final one that's outstanding. It's it's basically being brought by five groups of shareholders and four out of five groups have settled. This is the last group holding out. And indeed, in this group, there's quite a lot of individual shareholders, about 7,500 of them, and some of them are RBS employees or former employees. So I think the delay in this has been because some of the shareholders are diehards. They really want to kind of see Fred Goodwin cross-examined in court. They really want this case to go to trial. So that's why these talks have taken so long. And a final word, obviously, until it settles, we don't know what it's finally going to cost RBS. But the latest indication is how much? I think it's something like 82 pence a share is the latest we've heard. Whether or not they'll have to up that, which is possible. And that would equate to how Tens much? of millions, right. tens of millions. I mean, the shareholders that settled last year, at the end of last year, these four groups, they got about sort of 41p, something like that. So I think, you know, this is obviously almost double what these other previous shareholders have got. So the bank is obviously doing everything it can to try and settle this. We will monitor it closely. Jane, thanks very much for joining us. Our third topic of the day is a look at international banks in Asia and signs, Laura, that they may be starting to expand again. I was in Hong Kong last week and certainly the mood there has been a lot more upbeat than I've seen it in recent times. I mean, the bank's Asian operations have been through a very tough couple of years. There's been a lot of job cuts. They cut between 10 to 15% of their front office jobs from 2012. So banks have had a lot of pain there, partly because the market has tended to underperform the global markets. So last year, corporate investment banking revenues across APAC were down 7%, across the world were down 2%. Now we're seeing, though, some banks are looking to expand in niche areas. So we've got Goldman Sachs, which is hiring for its quantity. We've got Morgan Stanley, which is looking to do more in Australia and some South East Asian economies. We have Barclays who feels that because until recently Asia was part of Barclays Europe and now Asia is its own region and reporting directly into group and they feel that that's going to empower them to be more strategic and to actually grow in the region. So people are feeling upbeat about taking opportunities. Also there's an element of kind of filling the gaps where the competition have actually pulled back from. So there is scope for banks to kind of get in there and say right we think that things aren't quite as bad as they were a year ago when these banks pulled out. Now there's actually some space and we're going to go in there. So finally, Laura, if the past couple of years have been difficult and there's signs of selective hiring now, does that mean the outlook is a little brighter? The outlook is brighter, but it's still mixed. So certainly things like the big China One Belt, One Road strategies, there's going to be a lot of investment banking fees around all of those projects that people are feeling happy about that. There are some challenges in some of the trading businesses and we've seen Credit Suisse salute to this in particular and they're still cutting heavily. The issue there is that in recent years we've had a big APAC macro event. So last year everyone was concerned about China. That then leads to a lot of trading within the region. If you think about the big macro events this year we have the US presidential election is still kind of the outcome of that is still a macro event. You have elections within the Eurozone people are talking a lot about France, Germany. There isn't really a unifying APAC trend. So that is kind of taking some of the wind out of them when it comes to trading. Well, let's hope the tide has turned for prospects in Asia. Finally, we are going across to North America, where Alistair Gray has been looking at the Canadian banks and worrying signs of a potential mortgage crisis. 
Alistair, welcome. You've been taking a look at the Canadian banks, and it's quite an interesting time to look at them because of maybe a growing sense of nervousness about how solid the system is, sparked in part by this non-bank lender having a tricky time, this company called Home Capital. as a non-bank, takes deposits, and deposits have been fleeing as people get nervous about some of the mortgage lending it's been doing, and it's essentially being propped up now by some short-term expensive borrowing. It's small, the big Canadian banks dominate the market. Are there any lessons or crossovers that we should be applying here to the Canadian banks as a whole, Alistair, or are they in quite a different state? Well, as you say, there is quite a bit of nervousness about this subprime lender. The governor of the Bank of Canada even felt the need to speak publicly about it, albeit to reassure people who said the problems were idiosyncratic. But bears argue that this is an early sign of system-wide difficulties, like there were in the US in the subprime crisis. Well over a year before the collapse of Lehman, there were these mounting signs of pressure. And it's not just home capital. There are also other reasons to be nervous. Moody's, the credit rating agency, downgraded the sector just a few days ago. It warned of very high rises in house prices and rising levels of debt that households are taking on. There's also the question of Canada's energy exposure, the bank's energy exposure. There's been a new tax on foreign buyers of property in Ontario following a similar move in Vancouver. That's part of the authority's efforts to tackle the rising house prices, but investors are concerned about what that will mean for the banks. And on top of all that, there's also been allegations of a Wells Fargo-style sales scandal at TD, which is one of the biggest banks in the country, or the biggest bank, depending on how you measure it, which is also weighing on people's views of the sector. Now, of course, Canada's banks essentially came through the financial crisis in a pretty good state. So I suppose the big question is, have they come through and now are going to experience a crisis of their own? Or is this all going to come to nothing? Will it all be fine in the end? Well, there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic, if you have an optimistic mindset. Default rates across the industry are still very low. Mortgage, so-called loan-to-values, are at quite conservative levels. And the banks, the results are likely to show this week, are extremely profitable, much more profitable than they are in the US. As you say, the big five dominate the market, which has really kept the lid in competition. And there is a feeling that banks could earn their way out of a crisis, as one analyst put it to me. It's a bit odd, really, because earnings are by definition backward looking. But the results this week are going to be very strong. However it pans out, I suppose there'll be a lesson in there for other economies around the world, not least the UK, where house price inflation has been vast and the banks are pretty exposed. Thanks very much, Alistair, for your insight into the Canadian system. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura and Jane here in the studio and also Alistair down the line from New York. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., 
Corrientes experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.